You create your life with the stories you tell yourself. Want more fun, love, and money? Then write your new story and live into it. Louis DiBianco's podcast, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, shows you how to discover your empowering story. You'll meet many successful people who have created magnificent lives, even when the odds were stacked against them. Plus, you'll learn the secrets of great storytelling that can explode your business. And now, here is your host, Louis DiBianco. Homelessness. I think we would all agree being homeless is a very unfortunate way to live. Here's a question that may inflame some of you. Is a homeless person a victim of circumstances or a victim of a destructive narrative, a story in the person's mind? And before you stone me to death, I'll say this. I don't naively believe that it's always either or. I do believe in and know the transformative power of our inner stories, a power that can elevate or destroy your life. Hey, hello, storytellers, and welcome to another episode of Change Your Story, Change Your Life. I'm your host, Louis DiBianco. We're fortunate that our host, Audible, is enriching lives. They are offering you, our storytellers, a free audiobook download of your choice, plus a one-month free trial of all of Audible service. And you get to choose from more than 180,000 titles. Simply go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power and take advantage of this wonderful gift. Remember that this show is enriched by our dialogue with you. So keep your comments and inspired thoughts coming. Send them to Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, at changeyourstorypodcast.com. Today's guest knows something about homelessness and stories. He is the founder of Man Talks, an international organization focused on men's health, wellness, success, and fulfillment. He's also an international speaker, podcast host, and lifestyle entrepreneur. Once upon a time, he led high-performance sales and operations teams for none other than Apple. He has done a TEDx talk, and he has shared the stage with Lewis Howes, Gary Vaynerchuk, and Daniel Laporte. Man Talks has gained international recognition and has been featured in Forbes, Huffington Post, He for She, The Good Men Project, UN Women, and in Canada on CBC and in the National Post. I'm thrilled to introduce him to our show, Connor Beaton. Welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thank you very much for having me. I feel like I feel like I want you to record my intro. That was so <laughs> for for everything. I just want to take you with me, and so you can introduce me on stages and podcasts. That was that was incredible. Thank well, you. Well, thank you, and I got news for you. I did record it. <laughs> <laughs> I, might, I might have to, to you, use that. that you awesome. can just extract it if you want, right? <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. When you were growing up, what did you dream of becoming? Yeah, I mean, um, funny enough, when I was a kid, so I grew up in central, well, northern central Alberta, 
And um, for any of the Americans that might be tuning in, that's like the Texas of Canada. There's lots of lots of big trucks. There's lots of oil. There's lots of uh, cowboys, except it's like minus 30 half the year. And um, oddly enough, when I was a kid, I really I dreamt about either being um, a musician. So I loved Michael Jackson and I would, you know, always listen to his uh, his stuff as a kid. And I you know dreamed about being on stage and performing in front of people. Uh, or I was I dreamt about being um, part of the military, which was uh, something completely separate and random. And I'm not even too sure where that one came from. The 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 singing and the performing dream made more sense. Wow, that is quite a dichotomy from yeah. singing, from being a creative artist to being a person in the military. Wow, yeah, that's I fascinating. Think that, huh. I think that dichotomy always sort of existed within me and uh i think there was something i i really sort of liked and appreciated the sniper division not not so much because of what they did but more so the fact that they are tireless and relentless in honing their craft and so i think that there was something about that there's something about both of them that really tied together this this monumentous effort um towards honing your craft and i think that that was something that i always really respected and appreciated and so i think that that's that's what really sort of um drew me to both of those professions is that that concept and that idea of having to work so hard and diligently to to master something and being the best in the world yeah i was just gonna say it sounded to me like you were really talking about mastery and that is something that has attracted you all your life mm-hmm and I as well have always been attracted to mastery. And who planted the seed for, uh, let's let's say, the the dream to be in the world of music? Yeah, um, I, I mean, like I said, I you know I really idolized um, Michael Jackson and uh, growing up, and I just I loved his music. And and then the more that I sort of got into the music world and and started listening to different genres, and you know, sort of spread out from from mj to uh to rock and rap and in just sort of every every genre under the sun frank sinatra like you name it i really got into it um but i think the the real the real answer to the question would probably be my my father uh, my, my dad worked for the federal government when i was growing up and he uh also sang part-time with the edmonton opera and he was you know just the chorus and and just did it as a as a something that was a hobby um but you know growing up i i sort of admired that and i got to see him once in a while perform and i think that there was something that i really appreciated about that and um i i never i never actually like trained as a kid or uh, learned music as a kid but i i sort of always uh dreamt about it in some way didn't you eventually go on to do something with your voice uh, professionally I did, yeah. So I, um, after after high school, I started working construction, and I was working in gravel pits uh, in in northern Alberta, which is not the it's not the most fun job. Uh, and then I started building sidewalks with a construction company and uh, and that kind of stuff. And then I was pretty miserable. I really didn't enjoy it. And in a conversation with my dad, uh, you know, he. He, he sort of encouraged me to go and find something outside of this that, that I was passionate about. And so I went and took a voice lesson. 
And finally, you know, I think I was about 18 or 19. I went and took a voice lesson and found that I, I really loved it, you know, and it was something that, that I was, that I was really passionate about. And, uh, the, my, my teacher was really encouraging and, you know, she said, you, you have a, a natural talent for this and, and if you want, you should pursue it. And so at the age of, uh, 18 and 19, you know, I started to learn some of the basics about music. I didn't know the notes on the piano. I didn't know how to read music. I like, I literally didn't know anything. Um, and, and so I, I decided that I was going to dive in. And so I started teaching myself and then I went back to college and, uh, and just got some basic knowledge and understanding of music because, you know, of course, most people that are in the music industry, uh, they, they start off at a very, very young age. And so I was sort of behind the curve, uh, from the very get go. And, and then by the time I was about 23, uh, 23, yeah, about 23, I decided that I wanted to get a degree in music. And so, uh, I ended up auditioning for two major universities in Canada and I got accepted into both of them. And I, I went, uh, I actually went, ended up going to University of British Columbia, UBC, and, and got a degree in music, which was incredible. And I, I went on to actually perform in, you know, uh, Czech Republic and Germany and France, Italy, uh, China. So, you know, some, some places in North America with the Vancouver Symphony and in Toronto and New York. And so I actually ended up having a, a little mini, uh, mini career out of it which was pretty incredible and and i, I guess i should preface i i actually sang opera and so i was a, i was a classical singer and that's what i got trained in so it was a little bit different than being like a jazz or a pop singer wow now i would love to know what made you veer away from that and go into you know uh other directions yeah i think it's one of those things where I get to ask this question a lot because I think a lot of people are doing jobs that they don't necessarily like. And, and in our culture, in mainstream society, a lot of people are sold this idea that if you just follow your passions, you'll be happy. And what I've learned is that you can, you can be, you can be passionate about so many things. And that doesn't mean that that passion is actually your purpose in life. And so I, I actually got, you know, into the career, I got into the business, quote unquote, and found that it actually really wasn't the life that I wanted to be living. It didn't provide me with the freedom that I wanted. Um, the, the business itself is, it wasn't really something that I wanted to be a part of. It was very, um, you know, it's, there's, there's some good parts to it. Um, but living out of my suitcase for 11 months out of the year, I started to look down the line into my future and realize that that's not how I wanted to raise a family. You know, I didn't want to be the dad that was gone 10 or 11 months out of the year and didn't see his kids and, you know, was trying to raise them through FaceTime or Skype. Um, and, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't worth it. The cost that I would have had to pay for that career wasn't worth it for me. And for some people it is, uh, but for me it really wasn't. And so, um, so I, I let that go and, and, you know, moved on and, and there was a, a two year period where I really started to explore what my other options were because my entire identity had become, um, being an opera singer, right? So you know how we all do that, where we introduce ourselves, I would say, Oh, I'm Connor, I'm an opera singer. Mm -hmm. And, and that just became, it became who I was. And so when I let that go, uh, there was just this huge uh, void in my life that needed to be filled. But the cool thing was I got to experience and explore 
some some other really incredible opportunities that have led me to where I am today. So I'm I'm incredibly grateful for for everything that I learned in that career. What I love about everything you've been saying is that uh, you're a person who seems to have followed. You follow your instincts. You listen to your heart a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is so important because you're right. There are people who would be in a profession that seems very glamorous and they would fall in love with it and maybe not even allow themselves to recognize that they're not fulfilled. Yeah. And I, you know, I think it's, it's sort of like this, this plague that we have within our modern culture that, you know, as we move more and more towards um, having the freedom and the flexibility to choose what we want to do, there's sort of this paradox that comes up with this dichotomy that comes up where all of a sudden we're faced with an abundance of choice and people don't know what to choose. You know, a hundred, a hundred years ago, or, you know, a hundred or 150 years ago, people much less, uh, many less people actually had the freedom to choose what they wanted to do with their life. And in modern culture, especially in North America, we have that freedom, you know, and, and we really get to choose our vocation. We get to choose our, our, our place in the world. Whereas a hundred years ago, people were still trying to make ends meet and growing their own food. And, you know, it was a very different, uh, very different upbringing. And so for me, I've, I've always tried to really follow my intuition and, you know, for, for some other people, for the people that are listening, that might be their gut, it might be their instincts, whatever word or, or yeah, whatever word you want to use. But for me, it really is this, this intuition of really listening to what fulfills me and, and is that my purpose in life? Is this, if, if I was to die tomorrow, would I be happy with what I'm doing now? And to really honor that, you know, because we do have the space and the freedom to, to choose our lives in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, so it really is about intuition. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree that uh, there is an irony right now that we are becoming so abundant that for many people, the, um, the choices are paralyzing them. They don't know what to choose. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of research around it, right? The choice paradox is that, mm -hmm. you know, the more it, it's, it, you see it in a restaurant. If you walk into a restaurant that has five, <laughs> five items on the menu, it's so easy to choose versus when you walk in and there's five pages with 50 items on the menu, all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I actually have no idea what I want and, and, you, and, and you can't choose. And so, but the same thing is happening on all fronts. We are, we are inundated and, and just drowning in choice. And, you know, this shows up on Facebook, for example. You know, I think mo most people have a few thousand friends on Facebook. Well, how many of those people are you actually friends with? And when you have that many connections, how do you choose who you really want to build long-lasting, lifelong relationships with? And so, and the same thing is true with our career, with our vocation, with our purpose in life. All of a sudden, we have access to so much more than we used to have access to. And, and, and now people are, are sort of struggling to really choose what direction they want to take their life in because they can take their life in any direction. Mm -hmm. So how do you know where to go? Yep. And so we, we really do have this, you know, I, I work with a lot of, of men and women who are, are trying to answer that exact question. Why do I exist? Where do I want to go? 
why am I here? And, and what do I want to do with this thing called life if I really get to choose whatever path I want to walk? Um, I love it because um, uh, that's what I'm perceiving as well. And what I'm seeing connected to that is that one of the big challenges is the uh, enormity of the choices for distraction. And the distractions are coming at us so fast that I think many people don't even recognize that they are distractions. Mm. You know, the media and the web and uh, digital technology, which I absolutely love, is bombarding us at an exponential speed with distractions. And many people haven't caught up because they just don't, they haven't developed the mechanism to deal with that assault if you like mm. you know mm -hmm. yep. it's, yeah absolutely. Uh, i love it though i think it's a wonderful uh playing field to be in um you just got to learn to navigate it uh i don't know why i'm curious about this but did you have heroes when you were a boy <laughs> um yeah i mean i think i was like the classic uh i, I loved being outside like if you if you met me when i was a, a kid and and it was you know whether it was summer or spring fall winter like it didn't really matter you would find me outside in the backyard um you know just kind of like a salt of the earth kid i was digging holes and just playing around and uh, i was a, i was the kid that would you know rally all the other kids together and and play games and build forts and kind of stuff like that and and so i just i really loved being outdoors and and uh and so I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have like a lot of heroes in the, in the real life sense, but my hero when I was a kid was Superman. Mm -hmm. And I really identified with him because again, there was this, there was this incredible duality that he experienced that I, that I really, I resonated with because my, my parents were divorced when I was three and they went on to marry other people. And then they went on to both have a daughter uh, one year apart and then they went, both went on to have a son one year apart and then buy a dog and so I grew up between these two homes that were completely different you know one was the sort of like suburban uh, blue-collar working family and the other one was a very well-off family that I didn't that I didn't live with and so that I, I grew up in this dichotomy between what I perceived as a child in my in my child brain to be uh, to, to really be this um, this, these two different worlds. And, and so Superman was a, was a man from a different planet. You know, he, he came to earth and, and he personified what he thought, uh, was humanity. He personified in Clark Kent, this sort of representation of being able to hide amongst human beings while being a very powerful being. Um, and, and then being Superman. And so I, I always identified with that. Um, there was this, there was this part of like, you know, feeling like this Clark Kent like figure while feeling like I also had this power within me that was untapped that I, you know, wasn't really showing the world. And so I, I really loved that growing up and that, that resonated with me. So Superman and Clark Kent were really my, uh, my staples as a kid. Would you laugh if I said that I believe that we're right now on the cusp of an age when you can be Superman? No, no I mean, not at all. I think, you know, with the advances in biotech and, and artificial intelligence and, uh -huh. 
you know, there's there's so many fronts where it, the 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 rate of change that's happening is is exponential. And what the 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 type of change that I saw as a kid versus the type of change that my children are going to see is completely different. You know, our 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 world is just fundamentally changing before our eyes. And I think you know, in 30 years, with the advances in biotech and and the and the ways in which we'll be able to function. Um, are are just incredible. I mean, there's there's um, there's augmented. Uh, I mean, obviously there's augmented reality. But just a, uh, just one quick example of this is that you can get um, you can get contacts now that actually get embedded into your eyes that basically give you better than 2020 vision. So you you can actually see the the print the fingerprint on your fingers that's that's how good you'd be able to see and these are called bionic lenses and so you can you can look into those bionic lenses and there's a few companies that have patented it that are starting to put it out there and it doesn't matter your age you can you know whether you're 60 or 70 you can have bionic lenses implanted into your into your uh, uh, retinas and it will it will fundamentally change the way that you see and you'll have better vision than, than pretty much anybody else on the planet, which is incredible. Mm. And so that's just like one small glimpse into how our sort of human augmentation uh, will be will actually be unfolding. It's very subtle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Are you a follower of Peter Diamandis? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love his work. Him and him and Ray Kurzweil, I think they're they're really at the forefront. They just talk about different things. Absolutely. I just um, I just joined his um, Abundance three hundred and sixty digital. Mm, nice. It's available now. You know, I mean, you don't have to go to the Abundance three hundred and sixty event. Um, you can have access to all of that for an entire year at a time online. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, I'll send you some information about it after because it sounds like, I mean, you're already part of that in your consciousness. So, um, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I absolutely love it. Changing, shifting gears here a bit. What were the events that drove you to a very low point in your life? Hmm. The events that drove me to a very low point in my life were being completely out of alignment with with really my my own truth and and knowing that I was pursuing in some ways somebody else's dreams and that I was I had basically built my life in such a way to get approval and validation from other people and and I was this like classic night nice guy you know like I people liked me I was nice on the outside and and but on the on the inside I was I was pretty miserable because I just couldn't um, I never felt like I was pursuing my own goals. I never felt like I was pursuing my own dreams. I never felt like the the path that I was walking was actually was actually mine. And and so that led me to really hide things in my life. And so um, I always felt like I couldn't own or communicate um, or ask for what I really wanted in my relationships, in my work. Uh, in my health, like the, the just every part of my life, it was really this this sort of plague that that took over, and that started to really drive me down a, a dark path because, you know, I I started to lie and and manipulate to try and get what I actually wanted uh, in in the world and in my relationships, and it was in, incredibly isolating because all of a sudden 
I felt like even though I had some really great friendships, I felt like none of them actually knew who I was because I had done such a great job of creating this fake persona of who I thought other people wanted me to be that I was, I felt completely alone, even though that wasn't true, even though I had good people around me and good friends and family, I felt completely alone, not because, you know, I, I didn't have people who loved me, but because I felt like, um, I wasn't lovable. And, and that really led me into a, into a dark space. And I think that a lot of people go through that in some way, shape or form this, you know, I think a lot of us go through the space of feeling like we have imposter syndrome in, in some way, in some, uh, area of our life, whether it's, you know, we get the partner that we've always been looking for. And all of a sudden we start to self-sabotage because we have this underlying narrative or we have this, uh, underlying program that's sort of running in the background that's telling us that we don't deserve that and and i you know i see it constantly in in people's lives where they're self-sabotaging and so that's that's what led me down the path now when did this happen and what was it that you were actually doing at the time that made you feel this way like what kind of work you know something yeah Talk about yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because it was sort of at the peak of when I was singing. And so from the outside, it actually looked like my life was this magical uh, fairy tale that I think a lot of people really admired. You know, I was I was singing. I was traveling all over Europe and China and really just all over the world. And and I was, you know, getting opportunities to perform and 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 get paid to travel. And I had a beautiful girlfriend at the time. And, and again, in, in all of these areas, I felt like I was a fraud. You know, I felt like I didn't deserve the things that I was achieving. And it's not that I was a fraud in the sense that I didn't deserve them, but I was a fraud in the sense that I really wasn't owning, uh, what I wanted in life. And so, you know, I was out of integrity in, in my relationship, my, you know, my singing while, while I was, you know, posting photos on Facebook and, you know, <laughs> doing the keeping up the whole social media scene behind behind the scenes. Um, you know, I was really struggling. I'd, I'd get out of rehearsal. I'd be frustrated. I wouldn't be happy. I wasn't enjoying myself. And and I was really miserable with my career. And, uh, you know, and, and everybody else kept telling me how what how what a great life I had. You know, and my friends would say, oh, like, it's so amazing that you get to go do these things. And my family would say how lucky I was. And, you know, people that I met, people that I would sing for, you know, would continually tell me how incredible it was that I got to make a living off of my passion. And and it and I just felt even worse because here I had all these people telling me that I should have made it, you know, and and I was miserable. And and I think that in that moment, I really realized that you can seem to have it all from the outside and feel like you have nothing whatsoever. And, and it really taught me a lot about chasing, um, chasing fame, chasing fortune, chasing validation from other people and really starting to pursue what I actually wanted to do in the world. How long did that period last and what did it look like when you hit rock bottom? Uh, that, yeah, probably too long. <laughs> it lasted too long. I think, uh, I think oftentimes we hold on to things longer than, than we should because, 
you know, there's this, there's this, there's this belief in mainstream consciousness that like resiliency and gritting and just like, you know, getting through it is, is this really important uh, trait or characteristic to have. But the problem is, is that we often execute on resiliency in places where we actually need to let go and, and have resiliency in the space of letting go rather than in the space of holding on. And, you know, I grew up as an athlete, so, so letting go and moving on from something that was making me miserable meant that I was a quitter, meant that I was a failure. And, and so I, I was probably in that space for a good year and a half, maybe, maybe two years. And, and I just couldn't seem to let it go until, um, you know, it all came crashing down. It's like if you've ever seen Awesome Powers, the original Awesome Powers, there's a scene where he's on this, he's sitting on this steamroller and he's driving towards this guy that's like, you know, uh, 50 yards away. And the guy's just screaming because he's like worried about getting run over. But the steamroller is going so slowly that it turns into this awkward moment where you're like, is the steamroller still going to run him over? Because the guy could just move out of the way. Like, you know, we can just see they could just move out of the way. And that's what was happening in my life. I could see that a train wreck was on the horizon. I could see that my life was, a, was if I kept going in this direction, was going to completely implode. But I felt like I couldn't do anything about it. And so I just let the train wreck happen. And my relationship fell apart. My my career imploded and I, and I walked away from that. And at my lowest point, I ended up living out of the back of my car for about three weeks. And that wasn't because I was broke, but because I felt broken and I, and I felt like that's what I deserved. And I wow. felt like I couldn't go and, and actually connect with what had been going on. I felt like I couldn't go get support or help or insight. And so I just sat in this, in this sort of, space of, of being a victim and, and, uh, you know, had my own little pity party in the backseat of my 2007 Pontiac G5 and, and finally, you know, eventually pulled myself out of it. But, but that was really the low space. I, you know, I saw it coming, I knew it was going to happen and, and I felt powerless to, to actually, um, steer, steer the sort of vehicle of my life in a different direction and just sort of let the car wreck happen, let the chips fall where they were, and 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 decided to completely rebuild my life after that. This is fascinating to me because, um, I mean, as you describe it, it's as if there was another invisible being inside of you that was forcing you to stay in that state. Mm -hmm. And to me, that always comes back to the narrative. That it's those voices, if you like, that are speaking to us, that are overriding the other voices that are telling you, you could be doing something to empower yourself, but you're listening to the disempowering voice. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. And it's a disempowering narrative. And do you remember what your self-talk was like at the time? What kind of things <laughs> you were saying to yourself? Oh, I mean, it was hor it was horrible. I think, you know, for quite a few years, um, I mean, even growing up, I, you know, there was, there was times where I was pretty insecure. Uh, you know, I had ADD when I was a kid and I was one of the first kids in my school in like grade three to be put on Ritalin. And so there was, there was just always like this, this internal dialogue of I'm not good enough or 
I'm somehow less than other people, that there's something wrong with me. And, and that just got amplified. You know, the more that I hid things, the more that I, that I let my ego run the show and, and create this facade of a really impressive life to seek validation and approval from other people, the more that my internal self-talk just completely tanked. And, uh, you know, it was like in any given moment, I was always in the wrong. I was always doing something wrong. Like my internal dialogue was always that, that no matter what I was doing, like I wasn't waking up at the right time. I couldn't make, you know, food right. I wasn't singing properly. Um, yeah, you know, I was a bad partner. And so the, my internal self-talk, um, was incredibly negative. And, you know, I think that's what a lot of, that's what a lot of people experience when they go into depression. You know, we, we talk about these symptoms of lethargy and, you know, losing energy and not being able to get out of bed. But I think one of the biggest things that people experience when they have severe depression is, is just this horrendous self-deprecation, this, this, this horrible, um, narrative or script that's running this program that's running within our mind, within our brain, because the brain is essentially a computer, but this program sort of takes over and it starts to latch on to every part of our life. And for me, um, you know, that really was the program that was running and it, and it took me a few years to dig myself out of that space and to really build the mindset that I have today, because, you know, I, I went from being in that space to to not being in that space but it, it took a while and it took a lot of work i'm sure it did and was there a pivotal moment that helped you to rise up again um i i think that there was a there was a time so when i when i decided that i was going to like not live in my car anymore <laughs> i I went back and um, and started connecting with a few people, a few friends, and telling them what was going on, and sharing my story, and and really started asking for support and reaching out, um, you know, to to a few people and letting them know what was going on. And I was met with just an, an incredible amount of of love and support. And I remember having a conversation with one of my best friends, and him and I had known each other for almost a decade. And I told him everything that had been going on behind the scenes, and just kind of laid it all out for him. And was very open and transparent about my my struggle over the over the last year or two, and um, you know just kind of laid it all on the table, all the cards. And after I was done, there was just this silence, and he he just broke down, and he you know he was, he started he started crying, and he said um, you know I just thank you for being so real with me, and you know I I, I didn't think that I'd ever share this with anybody. Um, but he, he then described that he had tried to hang himself a month and a half before and that the only reason why he was sitting in front of me was because the, the beam that he tried to hang himself on broke. And I realized in that moment that like my, my problems didn't seem so bad. And not only did it not seem so bad, I've found myself questioning how I could know somebody so, so well, so deeply and yet be missing out on the most important, you know, probably the most important details of their life. And, and the same, you know, he, he had known me so well, and yet we had this dynamic and friendship where we felt like we were alone in our suffering and that we couldn't share those things with one another. And I started to notice that with a lot of guys, you know, a lot of the men that I had in my life, there was always this barrier. And 
and it really opened my eyes up to the fact that I wasn't alone in my suffering and that, that I wasn't alone in, in this space of not feeling like I could talk about the real stuff that was going on in my life. And, and it motivated me. It actually made me feel this intense amount of, of resiliency and action of, of optimism, of wanting to do something about it. Like I had a, a cause and, and this, this incredible purpose, this reason for being in the world that I was now going to try and help solve. And I didn't know what that looked like at the time. And it was, you know, three years uh, before I actually started Mantox and uh, a lot of a lot of self-study and a lot of uh, actual study and positive psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy and learning learning about all of those tools before I actually leaned into the work that I'm doing today. Um, but that was that was the catalyst. That conversation really shifted things for me. Well, thanks for sharing that. And what it made me think of, uh, um, I want to offer this to the listeners, my storytellers. I think that we, even if you don't sink to a point where you're crippled by depression or a sense of inadequacy, that very often we walk around and we're allowing ourselves to compare ourselves to others based only on appearances. We see people who are wearing, you know, smiles, who are dressed well, and who seem to have it all together. And then we start thinking about how we don't have it all together. And we start to think we're alone. Whereas I would submit that there's, you never need to compare it to anybody. Um, I love the line from Bob Dylan that even the president of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. And of course, as I say that, I do hope that in this day and age, we don't see that. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I agree 100%. I think that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly it, is that we never have to be alone. You know, I mean, suffering is, is the sneakiest, is just like the sneakiest uh, space for us to be in because when we're in that space, it almost feels like we're, we put ourselves in this box and nobody else is in the box with us. Mm. And, mm. and, and we either do, we either do one of three things. We then either try and pull other people into our suffering and pull them into the box with us so that we're not alone. And, you know, that can have its impact on our relationships and the world around us. Um, we, we either, we either try and do that or we push people away from, from the box. And so people are trying to, trying to get in with us or trying to support us. Um, or we, we choose the, the third option, which is we actually allow ourselves to be supported. We reach out, we get support and we, we allow the people to pull us out of the box and, and the sort of, and, and, and really receive help and support from the people who love us. The, the other thing that I found to be, and I just want to add this in, the other thing that I found to, to really be helpful in this space is just based on that analogy is to expand the box and to, to actually have everybody on the planet be in that box. Mm. Because the reality of the human condition is that everybody's in that box with you. Every mm -hmm. single person. And, and when you can look at it like that, that, that suffering is something that we all experience, there's a unification that can happen in that space rather than a segregation. And I think mm. that that's incredibly powerful. Oh, 
Absolutely. So tell us now about the most significant steps that led you to actually creating Man Talks, and then you can begin to tell us, share with us much more about Man Talks. Yeah. So, um, you know, after my after my sort of proverbial rock bottom, and and I just want to preface that that you don't have to hit rock bottom to make change. Um, I can't I can't strength uh, uh, say that enough. I hope that people receive that message. And and you know, if you're struggling, if you if you are on a path, and you can see that there's a major breakdown coming, um, do something about it. You know, reach out, go get support, get a coach, get a therapist. Join a join a group, a mastermind group, or something. Do something to course correct the path that you're on, um, because it doesn't have to end in disaster. Um, but after I hit my rock bottom, I I actually consciously took a few years to to really work on myself and reinvent and decide what I wanted to take the you know trajectory of my life. And so um, I moved in with a few friends. And uh, I did some minor photography on the side to to pay some bills. Um, but other than that, I pretty much took two years to learn positive psychology, to um, study human behavior, to study cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, one of my former uh, teachers had actually worked with Carl Jung, and so I, I was tutored by him as well. And and really just dove into the human psyche and understanding understanding why we make the choices that we make. And, and how we can actually um, not just pursue this idea of happiness, but how we can actually embody happiness on a day-to-day basis and how we can design our lives in such a way that, that happiness and joy is, is something that is there. It doesn't mean that, that um, sadness isn't there as well, but, but that happiness is just something that's, that's, uh, some, something that's given to us in that space because we've created the space for it to exist. Mm-hmm. And... And so at the end of the two years of this like study and um, uh, really diving into myself and diving into this work, I intuitively kind of felt that there was there was a shift and that I was ready to really build something that was going to be a cause for what I wanted to help uh, impact in the world, which was supporting men and in overcoming some of the toxic concepts of masculinity that I that I saw time and time again, so many of them even and, and especially myself were struggling with because I felt like I had to wear this mask and, and be this, you know, high performing man that that was in this field that I wasn't really fulfilled by. And so at the end of the two years, um, I ended up setting two goals for myself. The the first goal was to start an organization that would support men in being better fathers, better husbands, better business leaders. Um, and because I had never run a business before, I wanted to, my second goal was to learn about business from who I thought was the best in business. So rather than going to get an MBA or going back to business school or anything like that, I decided that I was going to go work for a company who, in my perception, really understood business well and, you know, understood marketing, sales, product design, leadership, the whole thing. And, and so I applied at Apple um, I, I really like the company. Um, I really love what Steve Jobs did. And so I, I admired them. And so I got a job at Apple about a month later and uh, started working within the organization, moved up the, the ranks pretty quickly and was fortunate enough to work with people, you know, who had who had their MBA from Harvard and Madrid and uh, IE, which is the top uh, top MBA program in the world and, um, and and really worked with some incredible business people 
who were at the top of their field in finance and marketing and sales and really got to learn from from them. And uh, by the time I was done, I was running, you know, helping to run the Vancouver market and um, and was fortunate enough to work with and for some absolutely amazing people. And while I was at Apple, I ended up starting Mantox, uh, Mantox up and just put on an event to raise some money for, for a charity for a friend of mine. And it kind of, uh, manifested and, and rolled, uh, rolled out from there. It really expanded and we got a lot of attraction and, and attention. And it was just incredible to see how quickly and organically, uh, it grew. So yeah, so that's how I started it. Fabulous. Tell us exactly now what man talks is so people can begin to um, visualize and understand um, what what the event was and what the organization became. Yeah, so man talks exists to help develop self-aware, high-performing and impactful men. And the mediums that we use to do that are podcasts. Um, you know, I've interviewed some pretty amazing people. Uh, so we talk a lot about relationships. We talk a lot about mindset. We talk a lot about finding your purpose. Um, so we've got the podcast. We've got an, you know, a great website with some, some great writers. Uh, so we've got a blog and, and then we've got the, the in-person stuff, which is, you know, we have events that, uh, that started in Vancouver and have quickly spread to around 10, 10 or 12 cities around North America. And those are live events that people can attend. And they're really, the, the, in the events, uh, people share their autobiographies. So we have men and women speak, and the events are open to both men and women. Because um, we want women to be a part of the conversation. And we, we, you know, we want them to, to see that, that men are doing the work, that men are shifting, that men are growing. And, um, and, and so we, we have these great conversations where guys will come out and share their autobiographies. They'll, they'll share their life in, in sort of 20 minutes with their greatest takeaways and their greatest lessons along with their greatest failures uh, around different topics. And then we've got mastermind groups and we've got chapters uh, for mastermind groups, sort of like the modern day men's group. I think that some, some guys wouldn't necessarily want to go join a men's group. Um, and so we created a, a curriculum for a mastermind group, which uh, is, is half personal and half professional. And so we go into finding your purpose, we look at social intelligence, we look at emotional intelligence, and we look at professional development. And those are those are like the four core pillars. Uh, and and now we're starting to roll out um, some online products that people can join us and uh, and 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 one on one. I do some one on one work with with people as well, which is pretty incredible. So it's turned into uh, it's turned into to quite the little movement and organization over the past couple of years. I would take out the word little. <laughs> now, how long did it take for you to begin to attract the leaders that you would need to implement this? Because you obviously, I know you think you're Superman, but I don't think you can be in all the cities at the same time. So how did this just, yeah, how, how did it come about? How long did it take? Yeah, it took it took a while. I mean, it was interesting because I knew I was onto something after the first and second event, where you know we would have the event and a dozen people would reach out to me, and you know we the the first two events only had like forty or fifty people there, <laughs> so they were they weren't very big. Um, you know, we started off pretty small. The, the first event was actually in a in a financial 
uh, institution that had allowed us to have free space. And so, you know, I would have the event and, you know, a dozen people would reach out all saying the same thing. How can I help? How can I support? I love what you're doing. I, I want to help it grow. And at first I actually had no idea what I needed because I, you know, it was just, it was just something that I had sort of created to, to support people and, and to raise some money for charity. And, uh, and, and so people came out pretty quickly. And, and I think that that's the, that's a sign that you are onto something special when incredible people start to show up and they are offering support. We, we need to, we need to look at that. I see a lot of people that, you know, have this lone wolf mentality and they think that they need to build something by themselves. And it, and it's actually the thing that, that crumbles what they're trying to build. And so, uh, so yeah, it was, it was actually pretty quickly. People started to come out of the woodworks and, um, you, you know, they were, they were coming to the events, they were offering support and, uh, you know, a lot of pieces came out of that. We had a guy that joined the team, um, about a, about a year in and, uh, and he was an incredible marketer and he was passionate about podcasts and he said, we should start a podcast through man talks. And even though I had never listened to a podcast, <laughs> and I said, okay, sure. And so we started it and I, I loved it and it's been an incredible journey doing that. Uh, so that's that. That was really the journey of of attracting people. Uh, when you're onto something, the right people will start to show up. And the the greatest question that I think I could I could give you is uh, and something that I always use is people when they ask you what how they can help um, instead of just tasking them or delegating them with something, ask ask them how they want to be of service instead mm. and ask them how they see themselves fitting in the organization. And, and you'll, you'll very quickly know whether or not they're a good fit because then they'll, they'll really have the opportunity to be transparent and speak their truth about how they envision themselves being a part of your organization. And, and then it's your job as the leader to really understand whether or not that, that fits in. I love it. And at the beginning, uh, did, you attract people mostly by word of mouth. It didn't, I don't, didn't sound to me like you had, you know, an active marketing campaign to attract people to these events. Did you? No, no. I mean, we've, we've actually like really never done, um, really any like traditional marketing whatsoever. We've, we've been featured in some media, um, but we haven't really done any, any marketing. And so all of it was word of mouth and, um, all of it was really, um, yeah, all, all of it was really set so that people would, people would share so that we, I really focused heavily on the experience and on the impact with the knowledge that if you give people an incredible experience, they'll want to share that. Or if you create an incredible product, they're going to want to talk about it. And so for me, it was, this is what I learned from Apple. They, they call them promoters in Apple. And so the, our job as leaders, whether it's in, you know, creating a service or a product or an event or whatever that is, is to help create promoters who are going to want to talk about you and your brand and what you're doing. And so we focused really heavily on that. And, and at the end of every event, um, you know, I just ask people rather than sharing it on social media, rather than just posting some photo in a, in a quote or something like that to actually physically tell one person. And that was it. You know, I, I would say if you want to tell 10, great. If you want to tell 100, that's awesome. But just physically tell one person about the impact in your experience at this event and invite them out to the next one. 
And that's what really helped us grow uh, really quickly because word of mouth is still and probably always will be the best referral and, and the best testimonial. Yes, absolutely. And at, at an event, what physically happens? Like, give me a, um, a Reader's Digest version of what might take place at an event. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of it's similar. We have three speakers and, um, and some opportunities to connect with the other people in the audience. And so, uh, so w when you show up, there's, there's three speakers, you get to connect with some people. Um, but the, the talks are kind of in a TED style format. So they, they only have 20 minutes. Um, but instead of it, instead of the talk being about an, an idea, the talk is about the, a person's defining moments. Mm. And so it's more about the individual than an idea. Like if you, if you watch a Ted talk, it's all centralized around an idea and maybe the person's story, uh, helps to shed some light on that idea. But usually it's just about that one central idea. And I took the opposite approach to that. I've learned more from people than I have from just ideas. And so, uh, so really it's, it's probably 70% about that person's life and then 30% about their idea or their takeaway, um, that they've, that their life really embodies. I love it because that is the essence of great storytelling. Mm -hmm. It's just beautiful. Now, what is the most, in your opinion, the most meaningful conversation that men and women can have together in 2018? and onward hmm the most meaningful conversation that men and women can have together is is really around understanding one another's perspectives i think we we live in this age of of juxtaposition where people are so fiercely trying to be heard that they are pushing themselves further and further away from other people's um, insight, other people's beliefs, other people's values. And, and we seem to see this rise of, you know, things like the alt-right and, um, and, and in response to, um, you know, things like, like we've got like the, the MRAs, men's rights activists that are in response to like third wave feminists and all that other kind of stuff. And so what I would say is the, the most important conversation that men and women can have is to have the conversation of how much you're alike, but also how much you can honor one another's differences. Hmm. And we seem to be finding ourselves in this space where there's this, there's this large call to action around having men and women be the exact same. And, and I fundamentally just think that that's garbage. Um, it, it just is like, you know, oftentimes we think differently, we act differently, um, we're, we're biologically different, uh, chemically and neurologically we are different. Like there's just so many ways that we're different. And the more that we can start to respect those things, the more that we'll be able to understand uh, what the other person is experiencing. And we'll have a completely different lens in which we can communicate. Um, and, and I think that that comes back to, that comes back to letting go of the need to have our opinions be right when facts say otherwise. Um, and so I think that that's the biggest thing mm. that we can do. And, and all of that starts with vulnerability, all of it. You know, we need to be vulnerable enough to admit when we're wrong. We need to be vulnerable enough 
to hear somebody else's beliefs and, and their perspective. And we need to be vulnerable enough to, to lean into the, into the discomfort of the unknown, of maybe not knowing how a conversation is going to go with our partner or with a friend or with a family member and, and being unattached to the outcome, but still leaning in and having the courage to do that anyway. Mm, love it. Do you think that there, can you identify one, let's say, dominant idea or attitude that men might hold? And also, on the other side, a dominant attitude or idea that women might hold that is the greatest barrier between them. Yeah, I think for the for the men's side, um, I think for the men's side, it, it really is in a lot of ways. You know, we, we we have this Facebook community with like three three and a half thousand men in it, and and what I see time and time again is that a lot of guys don't they don't know what masculinity is anymore. They don't know what it means to be a man, and they're and they're really trying to find it because this there's this perception. And there's this idea of what masculinity is, and and they've really bought into this negative sort of macho uh, stereotype of masculinity that isn't working for them. And so that's that's really really a dominant idea or, or belief on on the men's side is that for a lot of us we have this perception that we need to be this lone wolf, you know, and we need to we need to do things by ourselves. If we have problems, we need to figure it out by ourselves. If we want to build a business, we have to do that by ourselves. Um, you know, if we want to be in a relationship, <laughs> that we have to figure that out by ourselves. And so, you know, this this perception is really a, a hindrance um, for a lot of men. And then on the women's side, um, I'm not really too sure if I can speak to that. I think you know, I've spoken at a lot of of conferences that are that are female dominated, um, where they're they're wanting to understand what's going on in in the minds of men and i think what i've really seen is is this is sometimes a, a leaning towards wanting to teach men how to be men as a woman and and i think that that's challenging for a lot of guys because you know if a man was trying to teach a woman how to be a woman um he probably wouldn't have a very good frame of reference for that mm -hmm. and so I, I i think that for a lot of women there's sort of like this trying to feminize men in some ways because they see that a lot of guys are hurting. You know, they see that men are struggling. They see that men are, are really, you know, not in a good way, that they're in decline, that they're not happy, that, you know, they're, they're isolated socially. And so they see this and they say, well, that's a problem with, with masculinity. So why don't we make them more, you know, more feminine or, or teach them some of the feminine laurels that have allowed us to be communal, to be connected, to to be loving and kind and compassionate, and all these beautiful qualities that and traits that women have. But the, the the challenge with that is that a lot of men struggle to really hear and enter into that space. And so what men actually need in that space is to learn healthy masculinity from other men and to be taught about masculinity from other men. And so I'm not necessarily too sure if I if I answered your question from the from the female side um, entirely, but I think that that's that's one of the challenges and 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 I think there the, there is a little bit of a dominating narrative on the female side, especially now with the rise that that masculinity is bad, 
you know, that, that it's just like this blanket statement that masculinity mm. is bad. You know, I see it a lot in, in mainstream media where women are saying things like all men are rapists. And, you know, there's this woman who put out an article that said that she thinks that her husband and her three boys are, are all, uh, rapists and not, mm. not that they're capable of it, but that they actually are. And I think that's such a dangerous thing because then we villainize men mm. and masculinity and, and it, it creates this uh, very negative environment where men don't all of a sudden see their place in the world, but then they also feel like they're a problem to women. And that's just never, that's never going to be healthy. It's never going to end well for, for anybody in that space when you have the victim and the villain roles playing out in the, in the subconscious psyche of the collective. Mm. Oh yeah, you answered you answered the question beautifully. Thank you very much. You're <laughs> okay, very good. you're very lucid. You've obviously done your inner work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, do you think that today's man-woman conversation is also part of a much larger new story that's emerging in our world? Yeah, I I do think that that it is. I think that, you know, we see this mainstream conversation happening because there is an evolution that's happening. You know, men are men and women are looking at their at their traditional roles and starting to question whether or not that's actually what they want, whether or not they want to buy into uh, those traditional roles. And and so I think that we're you know, this kind of comes back to how we started this conversation around we have so much choice, you know, as a man and as a woman, you have so much choice around what that role can mean in 50 to 60 years ago our roles were were so structurally defined that we didn't really have to worry about going out of that now that doesn't mean that those structurally defined roles were healthy in a lot in a lot of ways they weren't um, but as we sort of break down these traditional roles and stereotypes stereotypes and archetypes of, of masculine and feminine I, I think it, there's a bigger conversation starting to emerge of what does healthy masculinity and feminine femininity look like and and how can we then create our lives in such a way that fulfills on that healthy masculine and feminine dynamic and and the the realization that that masculine and feminine polarities that masculine and feminine energy actually exists within all of us you know you're not just a hundred percent masculine energy you might have the parts and the genetics for it but every man has has a feminine side and every every woman has a masculine side. And I think that that's the bigger conversation that's being pulled out of some of the dynamics that we're starting to see in in this in this world today. I agree. And I think that uh, we can start to make progress and we take the stigma off of the words. Because when you say every man has a feminine side, I'm totally at home with what you're saying because I'm not threatened by what that word means. But you will get some men who, when they hear that word, are threatened by it, and vice versa. Women who hear mm -hmm. masculine, they've already <clears throat> demonized the word masculine. And so you say, oh, no, I couldn't possibly have masculinity in me because I abhor it. Well, they abhor a story around the word. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have, I think a lot of people have these internal narratives around what 
what masculine and feminine is or what men and women are. And, and I think that we need to start challenging and questioning those. Not that we need to all be uh, sort of like asexual, genderless beings, because I think that that's, I think that that's absurd, you know, when we have so much physical, chemical, biological evidence that genders exist, genders exist in every species. And so, you know, it's, it's not that we need to move towards this genderless space, um, but it is, that, it is that we need to sort of break down and at least look at and be conscious of what our internal narratives and dialogues are that may have been even implanted in, in your childhood. You know, if you grew up in a, in a household with a single dad or a single mom and they didn't like their partner, uh, there's probably some pretty embedded narratives that you have about the opposite sex simply because your single parent um, felt resentful or, uh, or had animosity towards their partner. And those, that animosity, that resentment gets carried down because you heard those messages as a child. And as a kid, you're just a, you're just a replicating machine. You just, you mirror what your parents do. You mirror what their beliefs are. And so in a lot of ways, if we're not conscious of that, we've taken on the, the beliefs of our parents. Or if you, you know, watch Fox News and CNN, you know, four hours a day, you're going to take on the beliefs that they're spewing out. And so just being conscious of what people are putting out and really challenging it, questioning literally everything I think is, is so important. Mm, totally agree with you. What makes you jump out of bed on fire every day, Connor? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I think some mornings I, I don't jump out of bed <laughs> with fire. <laughs> I think I think in the in the personal development world, you know, people uh, oftentimes like portray this this sort of like perfect being. You know, I see like a lot of a lot of coaches that sometimes speak in our stage that make their life seem uh, just picture perfect, and it's BS. And so I'm, I'm usually pretty honest with how there are some mornings where I don't jump out of bed. I legitimately roll out and onto the yoga, <laughs> onto the yoga mat. Um, but I think the thing, just to answer your question directly, the thing that really gets me out of bed in the morning is knowing that I have purpose in life and knowing that I have, I have this deep responsibility and this function in the world that I'm happy with, that I'm fulfilled by, that I know I'm being of service to. And, and that, you know, the Japanese call it ikigai. Ikigai is the Japanese word that literally translates to your reason for getting out of bed in the morning. Mm -hmm. And my ikigai is, is my purpose is really around uh, supporting men and, and helping to build better men, helping to build better fathers, husbands, uh, business leaders, professionals, and, and, and men who are genuinely happy and fulfilled because when there's better men, there's just better us. You know, there's, there's more equality in the workplace. There's better fathers that are raising kids that are future generations. There's better husbands who are showing up for their partners uh, and, and, and able to hold space for them and hear them and, and, and love them in the ways in which they genuinely uh, need. And, and for me, that is a good enough reason for my existence. It's a wonderful, wonderful reason for existence. It's, um, it's empowering and important, especially today. Yeah. What is your favorite book? Who I have a couple really good ones. Um, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna give two instead of one because I I can't I can never choose between these two. Okay. But the first the first one is a book called Awareness by a guy named Anthony DeMello, and the last name is two separate words. It's D E M E L L O. Anthony DeMello, um, and that that's just an incredible book. It's it's an incredible look at 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 awareness. He was a Jesuit priest. Uh, he was a, a a spiritual teacher for quite a while. Um, but he's just got such an incredible way of laying out how awareness is is the single most important thing that we can have in our life. If that if we if we want any hope of any change in our life, that we need to cultivate deep awareness. Uh, and then the other book that I absolutely love, and both of these books I've probably read at least half a half a dozen times. Uh, the other book that I love is a book called The Wisdom of Insecurities mm. by Alan Watts. And, and the book is just, you know, what the title is. It's, it's really what our insecurities have to teach us. And, and if we are present to our insecurities without letting them define who we are, we can actually allow them to refine our character. And, and I think that, that his message in that book, uh, while sometimes, you know, cause it's Alan Watts, sometimes a little esoteric and out there is incredibly profound. Uh, in in its simplistic version of understanding that our insecurities are are teachers, not bullies, to be avoided. Mm, love it. How about a favorite quote? Hmm, favorite quote. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many there's so many good ones. I find that it's always hard to choose. But I think what has resonated with me recently it's a it's an African proverb proverb, and it and it says if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm. And I think for a lot of us, we are trying to go far in life, in our business, in our relationship, but we're trying to do it alone. And and that's that's part of the culture that we've grown up in. And especially as as men, you know, we women are very. I like I, I see that women are very we centric, and they're very good at building community and in these beautiful spaces. And men are very me centric. We're very much like, what's in it for me? And, and how do I fit into this? And, and so we often try and go far by ourselves, which usually never works. <laughs> and so that, that African proverb has really stuck with me the last little while. And it's not attributable to one particular person, right? It's just, it's just, yeah, it's just an African proverb. I, I, I've, in the research that I've done around it, I, it, it's always just come back to African proverb. There's no specific person that it's, that it's attributed to. Cool. I love it. It's, it's, um, yeah, it really, really is, has a lot to say. Mm -hmm. I love what you said about women being more we centric. Uh, I'm in network marketing and it's not surprising that it's a female dominated industry because mm -hmm. it's about team building and women are better at that really than because they're nurturers, you mm -hmm. know, uh, whereas the men are more inclined toward competition with each other mm. that's that's good so if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing now in the world you can only change one what would it be yeah this is i mean you know the classic answers are like and poverty and all that kind of stuff but i think if i was to if i was to wave a magic wand and i could change one thing it would be that every single person owned how they contribute to suffering in the world 
Mm. And, and I think that if we, and I, this all again comes back to awareness. If, if every single human being on the face of the planet had a deep self-awareness around their shadow, as Carl Jung talked about, their ego, uh, as you know, the id, as Freud would talk about, uh, around how they contribute to not only their own suffering, but the suffering of mankind, I, th- I think that this world would look, uh, look very, very different. It certainly would. How can people contact you? Um, yeah, I mean, people can either check out the, my, my website, connorbeaton.com. Uh, they can go to mantalks.com uh, if they want to you know, check out the podcast and the blog. Um, or if you just want to connect with me uh, for something one-on-one, you can just reach out to me, uh, Connor, uh, C-O-N-N-O-R, at mantalks.com. I'm happy to, to take any, any questions that you have or if you're looking to work one-on-one with somebody, that's, that's great too. Um, or just you know, hit me up on the general social media channels. I think I'm on Instagram, uh, Connor.Beaton, uh, or just at Mantalks, uh, Facebook, like whatever your form of, of social media is. I think the only thing I don't really use is, is Snapchat. I just can't get into it. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, but you can reach out to me pretty much anywhere, and I will get back to you. And Beaton is uh, B-E-A-T-O-N. That's correct, yeah. Right. Any final thoughts for our storytellers today? Hmm. I think just just uh, just coming back to the point that your life is the greatest story that the world actually needs to hear, and and you know I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of speakers take the stage. I've seen a lot of storytellers on podcasts and videos and all that kind of stuff. And and the one the one piece of advice, if if I was uh, so inclined to to give advice, whether or not you take it is is up to you. Um, but my one sort of thing that I would leave you with is that oftentimes I see people tell their story before they're ready, and I see people share their story and their journey from uh, from a space of still being hurt and wounded, and it never has the impact that that they intend. Because when we tell our story from a space of hurt and when we tell our sp- story from a space of trying to heal, it's more about us than it is about the audience. And so my, my sort of final thoughts would be give yourself the time to really fully heal through what your story is. And, and whether or not your story is about failure or wounds or, or pain or whatever it is, um, but give yourself the space to fully process it. And, and know that you're ready to talk about it rather than coming from a space of needing people to hear it because it's going to help you heal. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. You've really contributed enormously to um, a very important dialogue. And Thank you. Um, thanks for enriching Change Your Story, Change Your Life. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I love the interview. Thanks. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely. And I really wish you enormous international growth. I'm sure it's going to continue. Thanks very much. Thank you once again, storytellers, for spending time today with me and Connor Beaton. Connor has enriched my world enormously, and I know that he has enriched yours. He brings an awareness an energy, a message to the world that if you open yourself to it, allow it to touch you, 
allow it to move you, you cannot help but grow, to grow into a better version of who you are, get closer to being the best you possible. Please let people know that they can hear this on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and at the website changeyourstorypodcast.com. Certainly go to the website and claim the free gift that I've created for you, a downloadable ebook called Storytelling Secrets for a Rich Life and Business. Also, take advantage of the richness that you can get from your favorite audio book that you can have absolutely free by simply going to www.audibletrial.com forward slash story power. And you will also get one month free access to all of Audible's service. Connor touched on so many important issues in the world today, things that affect us all, things that relate to our joy and our pain. He certainly has a lot to tell us about the dialogue between men and women, not just tell us, but to help us understand so that the dialogue between men and women can become stronger, clearer, and more nurturing. One of the things that I would like you to think about, which was an important theme in Connor's evolution and in Connor's message, is whose story are you telling? Are you really speaking in the world with your own authentic voice? Are you following a path that you are creating in the world? Or are you really stepping to and dancing to the tune of somebody else's drum? Perhaps if you are and not paying attention to your own authentic promptings, it could be because of fear. We all feel it. And my advice to you, my encouragement to you, is to embrace your fears. Start listening to those inner promptings that are really coming from who you really are. Listen to them and allow them eventually to give birth to the person you were meant to be in the world. When we stifle our own story, we're really saying no to being born. Allow yourself to be born and to shine your light in the world. You can begin by asking, how can I change my story and change my life? Tune in to the next episode of Louis DiBianco's podcast. Become unstoppable as you learn to change your story, change your life.